Hebrews 5, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the uh, ignorant and wayward uh, since he himself is beset with weakness. Uh, Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sin, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. This is God's word. Thank you, Ginger. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the day that you have created and that you have called your people together to come and uh, lift up one united voice in worship. Thank you for the reminder from the worship team as they sang your word that there is a day when we will gather all of the living creatures that gather around your, uh, your throne, the 24 elders, the angels themselves who cry out day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is, and who is to come. Lord, we thank you that you have been. We thank you that you currently are, and we thank you that you will be, Lord God. We thank you that there is no end to you, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, Lord, I thank you for that. Lord, I pray that you would minister to and touch every broken heart here today, that you would heal every ailing body, And that, Lord, that you would cause our minds to be set on you, that our minds would connect with you, Lord God, in a way uh, that uh, uh, will be life-changing and transformative, Lord God, that you would give us a brand new heart and place your spirit within us. Lord, we we thank you for the word that we're about to turn our attention to. We pray that it would search us and know us and, and, and would call us to holiness and to remembrance of your truth, Lord. God, I pray for my delivery of your word, that I would honor you as I do that, that, that glory would be received by you, Lord, as, as I preach your word, that I would do it accurately, Lord God, that I would be um, unmoved in your truth, Lord God, or from your truth, and that, and that we would all conform our lives, myself included, to your truth, Lord. I thank you for this moment and this opportunity to stand before your people. And I ask for your blessing on this time that we're together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Um, Hey, I wanted to make one more quick announcement before we begin. Um, I I mentioned this last week. We uh, have really wanted to uh, allow you to be able to incorporate your giving into worship. And what I mean by that is years ago, you guys who have been raised in church your whole life, that there would be a a plate passed or a basket passed for people to receive offerings. And it was usually a part of the worship service, a part of an act of worship. Well, we we all went digital and we all started uh, doing our giving. Even the most faithful givers among us usually do that on an app or a website. And so this isn't going to be a regular change, but it is something we hope to return to at frequent intervals. Um, we want to encourage you next week to bring a physical offering. And that means maybe a trip to the bank or the ATM or just pulling out and dusting off that old checkbook you never use anymore. 
and, um, and come with a physical offering because we are going to intertwine. We're going to, to, to join our giving to our worship next week. So even if you normally use the app, um, we want you to do it just a little bit differently next week. Ginger and I use the app every time we give, and so we're going to do it differently next week. And so we want to encourage you to join us in that. Um, uh, we'll have a, it, it won't just be the passing of a plate or, or a basket, but it'll be a real special time together. And, and, and what it does, it allows us to say, hey, um, my, my God, my Lord, my Savior is way more important than my stuff. And that in and of itself is an act of worship. So I hope you'll join us in that. It's going to be a real fun time together, and we'll do that. I want to say how great it is to see Stephanie Smith this morning. I am so glad you're here today. Uh, it's wonderful to have you, and it's good to have Pastor Dave back. He had to be out for a couple of weeks for work and some other things, and so it's good to have him back today. Um, well, let's begin. So if you've been here in the last couple of weeks or been watching online, you know that we're in a series, and the series that we're in, we're examining... Um, the the role or the the function both actually of the prophet the priest and the king in the old testament and um what we've done so far in this we've looked at the role and function of old testament prophets and more importantly we saw how the these old testament prophets how their lives pointed towards Christ Jesus and uh, because he was the one it wasn't about Jesus acting like one of the prophets. It was about the prophets pointing to Jesus because Jesus was the one who would appear as the world's premier prophet of all time. And he was so. He was the world's premier prophet. I use that language because Jesus embodied and personified the word of God. We talked about that. He was the living word, the logos of God. He, he it personified, he embodied the word of God. He also made perfect intercession for us by his death. And the Bible tells us that he's still interceding before us, before the Father, this very moment. Um, and so today, while we're looking back at the Old Testament, we're going to look at the functions and the role of the priest. Um, you'll notice that the functions of the priest overlap often with the functions of the prophet. We'll see this is true of the king as well. Um, they often overlap, but they, they are still uh, distinct, and, and that's what we're going to try to see is the distinction. So, for example, that overlap, we'll see that the priest's ministry uh, involves making intercession for people before God. And this is similar to what we said that the prophets often did, but it operates differently. Um, but this is what I want you to understand, as we explore the priest, that their major their, their primary role was to be a mediator, someone standing in between both God and the people. And they stood as God's human representatives um, before the people, and they presented the people's needs and, and their petitions uh, before the presence of God. That was the, basically the, the, the summation of the, the role of a priest. Now, as mediators, this involved blessing the people of God. It involved teaching them the law of God. It involved offering animal sacrifices for them so that they could be forgiven of their transgressions, so that they could be a part of the congregation, and so ultimately so they could approach God. But before we get into the details of what the priests did, we need to have a, a, a good understanding of who they were. 
The people of God did not have a specific priesthood that was called and ordained to play this mediatorial role until the law was given at Mount Sinai. But, and that was several hundred years after the story of the Bible begins. But what I want you to understand is that we actually see foreshadows of the priestly role from the Bible's earliest history. Um, when we talked about the prophets a couple weeks ago, we saw how that Adam, way back in the garden, played a prophetic role in that the word of God was revealed to him. God told him what he wanted, what, what he expected, what, how, uh, how he was going to bless Adam. So the word of God was revealed to him and he was to guard it. He was to proclaim it, at least to his wife, and he was to obey it. When the serpent, serpent came in to deceive Eve, um, he should have intervened for her safety, but Adam failed to steward the word of God and to stand up in his wife's most vulnerable moment. But what I want you to also understand is that Adam also had a priestly role to play. Think of the garden as a temple where he and his wife participated in the worship of God. As the father of all of us, as the father of the human race, Adam stood as our representative before God, as I said the priests did. But he failed in his priestly role as much as he failed in his prophetic one. This is what the Bible tells us. It says, therefore, in Romans 5.12, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. What it's saying is that Adam as our representative, as the mediator between us and God, failed miserably in his job. So... After Adam and Eve, after, after the Bible tells us that Cain killed his brother Abel, Adam's sons, um, that human beings, the Bible says at the end of chapter 4 of the, of the book of Genesis, it tells us that human beings began to call on the name of the Lord. What did that look like? What was the form that that took? Um, we see this happening in the, in the form of uh, the offering of animal sacrifices. See, God had shown way back in the, in the garden after the fall, he'd shown by killing animals so that he could clothe Adam and Eve with their skins, he showed them that blood would be required to cover the nakedness and the shame of our sin. That blood was absolutely required for that. So after the flood, we see in this memory of, of that, we see that Noah offers burnt sacrifices to God. Abraham, uh, who we've already talked about, also built off altars and offered sacrifices to God, as did his son uh, Isaac and his grandson Jacob. They all offered sacrifices. A real unique uh, kind of vision of this is that the Bible tells us that Job, Job is probably the oldest book in the Bible as far as the, the chronology of when they're written. And the Bible tells us that Job served as a priest for his children, although it doesn't use the word priest. This is how it describes it in Job chapter 1, verse 5. It says, Job would send and consecrate his sons, and he, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. So he'd offer a burnt offering for each one. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. So we see this vision of a priestly role that Job is playing for his own children. His fear was that they had a broken relationship with God because of their foolishness. And so he would intervene for them. He would consecrate them. He would, he would offer burnt sacrifices as a propitiation uh, for their sins. But it was on Mount Sinai, as I mentioned, after God had given us the Ten Commandments, 
that God gave Moses directions for establishing an, a recognized, ordained priesthood for the nation of Israel. Hebrews, that Ginger just read, says, For every high priest chosen among men. Now, by using the word chosen, it's understood that not just anybody could be uh, or could apply for this job. Let me tell you a dirty little secret about ministry. It's this. Anybody here that wants to be a minister of anything recognized and ordained can jump online, pay 20 bucks to somebody. And they will send you a certificate of ordination. They will say, you know, uh, uh, you can be ordained as an atheist minister. I kid you not. You can you can be ordained as that. It's not that difficult. But uh, but a, a piece of paper hanging on your wall does not equate to the call of God. That's what I want you to understand. And in, and in, in God's priesthood, not just anybody could say, you know, that priesthood uh, job seems pretty cushy. I think I'd like a piece of that and go do it. No, there were specific people that could uh, do that. So one uh, only, the Bible tells us, only the descendants of Aaron, who Aaron was Moses' brother, could be part of the priesthood. Korah... Uh, in, in Numbers chapter 16, along with a man named Dathan and an, a man named Abiram, uh, these three men, they, they led a rebellion against Moses and Aaron because they were offended by this exclusivity that God had chosen Aaron. And they said this, they said, you've gone too far for everyone in the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. So why then do you exalt yourselves Above the assembly of God, uh, assembly of the Lord. And so what he is, what, uh, uh, you know, these three guys missed is that Moses and Aaron had not exalted themselves. The Lord had exalted them. The Lord had called them. The Lord had put them in that place. And so the, uh, the story ends. You can read it for yourself in, in uh, number 16, but it ends very tragically. The Lord proved that he had chosen Moses and Aaron because uh, while they were all speaking, the Lord caused the ground to open under these three men and all the people that were following them and literally swallow them up and close up under, uh, uh, close up after them. The, the, the earth literally ate these guys. And this is why the writer of Hebrews says, and no one takes this honor for himself, but only when, he, when called by God, just as Aaron was. So we call this priesthood that God established in his law for Israel, the Aaronic priesthood, not ironic, but Aaronic uh, priesthood, because God ordained it only for Aaron's family from the tribe of Levi, only they could be uh, included in the priesthood. And there were many things about the priests that made them distinct among the people besides being selected from the tribe of Levi and the family of Aaron. Their ordination, um, when, that, when a priest was ordained, included, you can find these instructions in, Le, in Leviticus 8, but it included being washed, that they were to be cleansed at the very first onset of their uh, service. Now, I want you to know this was not some bath that was taken for hygienic purposes. It was literally a symbolic washing. It was, you could actually call it a baptism. It was, it was similar to what would take place in a baptism. And the idea was to set them apart as holy and to set them apart as separated to the service of the Lord and his people. And next, they were dressed in special garments 
that, were, that made them stand out uh, from the others. Think about this. We have this in our culture today. If you see somebody dressed in a, in a blue uniform and have, has a gun on his hip, you know that that person is different. That's a, that's a police officer. You know that, that they stand out from the crowd. Well, not so much in Texas, but they do stand out in the crowd. And, and you know, you have other people that wear maybe military uniforms. And, and so this was similar. They, when people saw the priest, simply by what they were wearing, they would know that's a priest. And so Aaron, um, the, the high priest, uh, he wore vestments that were more elaborate and, and highly symbolic than his sons wore. They also wore special garments, but, but his, as the high priest, were a little different. And all of these Garments are described in Exodus 28. Now, it starts with, believe it or not, their underwear. Uh, the Bible tells us that they wore linen undergarments that are very, uh, you know, uh, de- in great detail described. Now, that may seem odd to you. It wasn't just a big question of boxers or briefs. God was describing something, and it mattered. This is what the Bible says in Exodus 28:43. It says, And they shall be on Aaron and on his sons, when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die. This, the, even this instruction of what they wore under their garments was emphatic of their holiness. See, Adam and Eve had to be covered after they sinned. And God is saying that the priest's shame represented by nakedness couldn't be exposed as they ministered either, but that must be covered by God's righteousness. And this is, this is, we'll get more into this next week, but the Bible says that as the people of God, that we are going to be robed with Christ's righteousness. We will not be left exposed. We won't be left naked in our sin and shame, but we will be clothed in God's righteousness. They also wore linen ephod. Now, you may not be familiar with the word ephod, but it's basically an apron with, with shoulder straps. And the ephod was unique in, in that it had two onyx stones that were attached, one on each shoulder. And each one of those stones had engraved on them 12, the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, six on each of the stones. And this symbolizes such a beautiful picture. It symbolized that the priest bore the burden on his shoulders of the whole congregation's needs and sins right there on his shoulders. It, but, but more than that, they also wore like kind of a, a breast piece over their chest and, and over his heart, the priest wore this and it had 12 precious stones embedded into it. One for each of the tribes of Israel. And so he was not only to wear, to bear the weight of the people on his shoulders, this is really important, but he was also to carry them close to his heart, loving them. He wasn't to begrudgingly serve the people. He was to carry them close to his heart. I love that. And, and, he was to love them individually. See, on the shoulders, they were just kind of lumped together. Six on this shoulder, six on this shoulder. But on his chest, they were named out, all 12 tribes. And he is to love them individually, not just as a nation like the East Ephod showed. The breastpiece also held what, what is called the Urim and Thummim. And those were stones by which the will of God was made known. The proximity to his heart 
of a decision-making apparatus from God showed that the priest was to trust God with his heart entirely. Isn't that beautiful symbolism? I love all that. He also wore a turban, and the turban was emblematic of the priest standing as Israel's mediator between God's holiness on one hand and the people's sinfulness on the other. It had a golden plate attached to the front with the words, Holy to the Lord. And as people appeared before the priest to consecrate their sacrifices, the priest was designated he'd be able to carry away their guilt in the name of the Lord because he was holy to the Lord. Now the priest had to be arrayed in these garments in order to perform the ordained functions for the people and before the Lord. Once he was properly dressed, a specially formulated anointing oil was poured on Aaron's head. Now, this is important because if you come up for prayer, if you want, you know, the Bible says, come before the elders, they'll anoint you with oil. Usually we go like this, blink, right there on your forehead. That's just a little dab of oil. This is not what happened with Aaron. It's not what happened with David and other people in the scriptures. The Bible says a whole horn full of oil was opened up and it was poured over the head. So how would you feel like if you had a tummy ache and you came up and prayed and I just poured oil all over your head. That's, that's a better picture of what actually happened in the Bible. That, that they, they poured. Now I want you to think what would happen if, if you took this specially mixed, it was only to be used for the purposes of the ministry in the tabernacle. If you have the special anointing and you are actually soaked in it, what is that going to result in? What would happen is that there would be this sweet fragrance that would follow him everywhere he went. And so Aaron would walk by and you'd go, whoa, that guy is anointed. He's, got, he's, he's been, uh, uh, had something put on him that makes his presence a lot different. Y'all following where I'm going with this? See, the anointing oil in Scripture, or anointing with oil rather, always signifies the presence and the activity of the Holy Spirit. In the Bible, prophets, priests, kings were anointed for service. The idea was that the priests, listen to this carefully, were not empowered to minister by the law or by their calling alone. They couldn't say, well, the law says this is how I, you know, I'm supposed to do this. And they couldn't say, well, you know, I'm, I'm a son of Aaron, so I, I'm able to do this. No, they were empowered by the nearness and the, and the indwelling strength of the Holy Spirit of God. That's, how, that's what gave strength to their ministry. And that's what that anointing with oil represented. Moreover, three sacrifices were made to prepare the priest for service. First, a bull was offered as a sin offering to make substitutionary atonement for the sins of the priest. Its blood was sprinkled on the altar in order to cleanse it for God's purposes to be carried out on it by sinful, faltering men. And the next, a ram was wholly consumed by fire. They burned the whole thing up, signifying that the priests were now wholly belonging to God. These two offerings is what the, the writer of Hebrews was referring to when he said this when, in the, in the uh, uh, scripture Ginger read us this morning. The priest himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. In order to cleanse, these ceremonies point out, the priest had to be 
cleansed. Lastly, another ram was offered for the ordination, but instead of sprinkling the blood on the altar, its blood was placed on the right earlobe, the right thumb, and the right big toe of the priest, because the right side denotes strength. And what this means is it shows that the priest is completely God's. Having been purchased with the blood of an innocent animal sacrifice, he is now ready to listen to God, to work for God, and to walk in God's ways. The ceremony ends, this is so beautiful, the ceremony ends with a meal showing the covenantal fellowship bond that exists between God and the priests that he's chosen. And now that we understand who they were, we can look into what the priests did while operating in their ministries. Hebrews says that the priests were appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And this relates to three main activities that the priests engage in. First, the priests were to teach the law of God to the people. It was their primary responsibility to let the people know what the law of God said. Malachi uh, chapter 2 verse 7 says this, For the lips of the priests should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. The priests were to bless, secondly, the priests were to bless the people of God. As God's human representatives, they, they have to do what God does, and God blesses his creation. You guys will remember in the story of Adam and Eve back in the garden, that before God gave any command to, the, to Adam and Eve, before he said, you know, be fruitful and multiply, take dominion, any of that, the Bible says first, he blessed them. He blessed them first. And this teaches us that although teaching the law and knowing its precepts was important, the priests were to bless the children of Israel so that they could understand as they approach his law, they could understand the tender, compassionate nature of the God they were to obey. And they could love him. And they could serve him gladly instead of from fear. <coughs> Excuse me. And this important duty was designed to connect the people to God intimately. He said that the, the, the blessing, the blessing that we're, we pronounce sometimes, I'm going to actually pronounce at the end of the service, it says, it, it, God said that, that that blessing was designed to put his name on his people, to intimately connect you with God. The priests, what we mostly think about of the priests in the Old Testament is that they were to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And this was without a doubt, their most important intercessory duty. There were five unique types of sacrifices the people offered to God. And the priests were to know the differences and the regulations concerning each one of those sacrifices. Three of these offerings, the burnt offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering, were specifically designed to make atonement for the people. And the gruesomeness, it was a bloody mess when an animal was sacrificed. And the gruesomeness of those sacrifices reminded them that the wages of sin is death. Sin always means something has to die. Always. No exception. But it also means if they were to be forgiven, that there would be a high cost to that forgiveness, for that forgiveness. And this was clear 
in the requirement that the one offering, the animal, was to place his hand on the beast's head. Whatever kind of animal it was, they were to place their hand on the beast's head because it was understood that an innocent animal was about to die in exchange for the life of a guilty human being. The most important sacrifice of the year happened on the Day of Atonement. This is when the high priest would go in alone to to the most holy place in the tabernacle, later the temple, to make atonement through sacrifice for the people and all of their sins. He went alone. He was the only one before God on the people's behalf. And what a sobering moment that must have been as he stood before the mercy seat of God, pleading pardon for a stubborn people who had nothing to offer but animals' blood. Couldn't offer their own righteousness. Couldn't offer you know, anything of worth to a holy God, but just animal blood. And there had to be, in that moment for the Jewish nation, on the Day of Atonement, there had to be a trembling fear, would this offering be accepted? Will God take what we're offering? And in that moment, the Bible tells us that God himself would appear in a cloud over the mercy seat. When the priest went inside, he was required to take incense and place it into the fire that was burning in there so that the smoke would cover the mercy seat, preventing him from seeing God in his holiness. We talked about that last week. God had said, no one can see my face and live. And when he went in, the high priest didn't wear his high priestly vestments, but rather he wore simple linen garments and a linen turban. And this represented the humility that is always appropriate when we stand before God. In Proverbs, it tells one of the seven things that the Lord hates is a haughty look, a proud look. So whenever we approach God, it it always demands a response of humility. So after offering a bull for his own sins and the sins of his own family, two goats were brought forward. And one would be a sacrifice for the people. The priest would lay hands on the other one. After the one was sacrificed, lay hands on the other one and confess over it all the sins of the people. It was then that 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 goat was led out into the wilderness, and it was set free, carrying all the sins of the people with it, never to be seen again. And this goat was called the scapegoat. And it would be impossible for us to calculate how much animal blood was spilled in Israel over the centuries. Animal sacrifice, though, what I want you to understand, was a covering. It was a, it was a, a, a payment made, a minimum payment. You know how when you get your credit card statement and you, know, you owe however many thousands of dollars and it says your minimum payment? Do you ever look at that thing on the back that says, if you pay your minimum payment, you'll pay this off in 78 years or something like that? <laughs> well, that's kind of how sin is. An animal sacrifice was like a minimum payment. It, it made, allowed the people to stay in the congregation of God, to, uh, to maintain fellowship with God, to approach God, but it did not take care of the sin problem. It didn't take away sin. It just covered sin, making momentary mercy possible. And Hebrews points to this and points us in that direction. And it says this, chapter 10, verse 1, it says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, 
instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, everybody say never, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. What it's saying is the law and all the sacrifices required in it will never make you better. Never. In fact, he says it's impossible. Verse 2, otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having been once cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? He's saying, hey, if these things work to remove the guilt of sin, we would stop, well, they would have stopped offering them. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. Every year, the, the, the high priest goes into the, the uh, most holy place for the Day of Atonement. It's screaming to the congregation, I'm doing this because you're guilty. I'm doing this because you need this to be done. You need a sacrifice to be made so that you can, you can approach God so that he won't consume you in his wrath. Verse 4 is the summation. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So when you look at the, the, the Levitical priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood, and all those sacrifices, you may admire things about that priesthood, but you've got to come to the conclusion that it was entirely ineffective. It could not take away sins. Blood offered on the Day of Atonement year after year was a nagging reminder that our moral engine light was on. Something was wrong. If sacrifice had been a lasting solution, we wouldn't have kept offering them. The writer of Hebrews shows us that while sacrifices were important for the purposes they were given, they failed to deal with our sin debt permanently. We didn't ultimately, listen to me carefully, this is the punchline of this whole message. We did not ultimately need more faithful administration of an ironic priesthood. We needed a better sacrifice. And Jesus was that sacrifice. Returning back to the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, it says, He entered once. Don't, don't read over that fast. He entered once for all into the holy places. He didn't come back year after year. Every year on Good Friday, we don't celebrate Jesus being crucified again. We celebrate that he was crucified once and for all. Jesus' day of atonement was a lasting day of lasting atonement that never ends. He entered once for all into the holy places and not by the means of blood, or, uh, of, of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood. We don't need a better administration of the old priesthood. We need a better sacrifice. And Jesus' blood was a much better sacrifice. Because here's what it says. It says he did this by means of his own blood, thus securing for us an eternal redemption. Eternal, never-ending redemption means our debt is completely paid. And that is cause for celebration in the body of Christ. That Jesus has secured us by the means of his own blood. Jesus Christ died on a cross 
so that he would be the final sacrifice, so that his blood would be the last ever to be offered, that he would not just cover our sins so that we could be temporarily acceptable to God, but so that our sins could be removed forever. You remember it, John the Baptist proclaimed, he cried out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Perfect sacrifice. Psalm 103.12, most of you would be familiar with this, I would imagine, but it says, as far as the east is from the west, east from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. My goodness, what a powerful promise. You see, east to west is a continual line. If you were to start trying to circumnavigate the globe and you started traveling east... How would you know when you got there? Because wherever there is, you still got some east to go. So, well, I'm never going to get anywhere here, so I'm going to go west. So you turn around and you start walking west. Do whatever you have to do. Take boats, trains, planes to keep going west. And you will never arrive at west. Because it's a continual line. Going around the globe over and over. East and west. You can't calculate the distance between east and west because there's always more east and there's always more west. And Jesus is saying that that is the distance that he will remove your transgressions from you. And I I want you to hear that because some of you live in the fear that your transgressions, things from many years ago, are hanging over your head like a black cloud and any minute for sorry for the mixed metaphor but any minute the, the other shoe is going to drop and i'm telling you that if you are in jesus christ there is no black cloud there is no other shoe to drop because he has removed your transgressions by his perfect sacrifice once for all he's removed your transgressions as far as the east is from the west so if you try to go find him you never will because they're, they're infinitely far away. So it's also glorious to consider. Well, now, you may have thought, except for this last little part, we didn't talk about Jesus. This message, in a lot of senses, was the great setup, okay? So just trust me on that. Because it's glorious to consider that Christ is not only the perfect sacrifice, but get this, this is what's so cool. He's also the great high priest who offers that sacrifice. He's not, you know, a a priest, when he offered a sacrifice, that sacrifice was detached from him. I offered a goat, a bull, but Jesus came as our priest, went into the holiest place for us, and offered himself. It's incredible. So we're going to talk about that a whole lot more next week, how Jesus is our high priest. If God's willing, that's what we'll do. So I'm going to ask you to stand right now. I want you to recall some things that I said in this passage. That Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. There's none like him. Your moral intention is not a perfect sacrifice. Your hard work isn't a perfect sacrifice. 
your churchy activity or your conservative politics are not the perfect sacrifice. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. And he is the perfect high priest. And today, he has invited us, as the Bible calls us a kingdom of priests, he has invited us to a fellowship meal with him that seals our covenant, our bond of fellowship with him, just like the priest did. And what a beautiful picture of a lamb who was slain, of blood that was spilled. Jesus, the night before he was crucified, he took bread and he, he broke it and he said, this is my body. He gave thanks. He said, this is my body. Now listen to this. Such an important clause in this sentence. This is my body, which is for you. He made an offering. Your great high priest made an offering. He made a sacrifice of, the per, of his perfect body. He laid himself down as the perfect sacrifice for you. And he gave us this reminder of just bread. And he said, remember Remember, and do this in remembrance of me. So let's take this wafer this morning that outside of this moment would mean nothing, but in this moment it means everything. And let's give it with thankful hearts that it represents a sacrifice that was made for us. Can we pray? Father, thank you so much for sending Jesus that he came into the holy places, our temple, and he offered his blood. He sprinkled it on the mercy seat of God. And God, because of that, you were not temporarily satisfied, but your wrath was completely abated toward human sin because of the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. And it wasn't just human sin in some general sense. It was my sin and Sherman's sin and Gabriel's sin and Daryl's sin, Lord. It was specific. You forgave us, Lord God. We thank you for that, Lord Jesus. We thank you for just right now, tell him that you're thankful for your, for, for your forgiveness. We need to always return to thankfulness to God. So tell him that you're thankful that he has forgiven you. If you're struggling this morning with past sins, tell him thank you that you've taken my transgression and removed it from me as far as the east is from the west. And it is no longer a black cloud hanging over my head because you made a perfect once-for-all sacrifice. Jesus, in his death, put death to sin in your life. So we thank you for that, Lord. Let's take the bread together. The apostle also talks about this cup. And he says that Jesus said about this cup that it's a new covenant in my blood. The old covenant said, obey and be blessed. It said, if you don't, then you better have some livestock ready to slaughter, to cover your sin. But Jesus said, this is a new covenant in my blood. It's the blood of Jesus that washes away all of our sin, that makes us 
clean, though our sins be as scarlet, by the blood of Jesus they will soon be white as snow. And that's what the blood of Jesus does for you. Perfect sacrifice, perfect priest. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the blood of Jesus. Jesus, we're so grateful that you were willing to be the sacrifice, that you settled all of our debt, that you obeyed perfectly for us, that you granted us your righteousness that was from your obedience, not ours. God, we thank you that in our fellowship with you, John tells us in 1 John that in our fellowship with you, in our connection to you, in our in, in the, the, the bond of covenant peace that we have with you, that your, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Not just past friends, but present sins and future sins that you are daily cleansing us, Lord God, because we put our trust in you. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, let's take the cup together. So you'll recall that I told you that the priests were commanded to bless the people. And they were told that when they do that, they would put, the, uh, you can read it for yourself. In Numbers chapter 6, it says, and, and in so doing, you will put my name on the people. And so here's what I want to tell you. I want to say the words written in number six and thereby proclaim the Lord's name being placed on you. And here's my word to you. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. I'm not talking about cussing. I'm talking about as you carry the name of the Lord through the blessing of the Lord, through the fellowship of the Lord, through the redemption of the Lord, don't walk out of here and live like you have not been given the name of the Lord to rest on you. Would you place your hands in a receiving position? The Lord bless you. I don't usually pause in the middle of my benediction, but God wants to bless you. He wants you to know that. With every good thing, with every fulfilled promise, with every mended heart, with every healed body, He wants to bless you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. You are not teetering on the edge of destruction. The Lord wants to keep you, to secure you, to anchor you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you. Don't divert your eyes from the smile of the Lord. The Lord is pleased with you. And the Lord longs for you to see His gaze, see His smile, and be gracious to you. The Lord is patient, compassionate, long-suffering, and tender. The Lord lift up His, his countenance upon you. He wants to, to let you see His face. He says, the Lord said, seek my face, and we respond, your face, Lord, will I seek, and give you peace. The Lord can give you peace. The presidential elections and COVID-19 and burning cities cannot take from you. So the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. Be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you peace.
In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, amen. You're dismissed.